Thank you. It's nice to be back here. See some familiar faces and some new friendly faces. I just landed uh, less than a week ago back from Israel, where I'm now living much of the year. And I wanted to speak about a topic this evening, which in teaching Dharma in Israel has become seemingly the most important aspect of the Dharma, or perhaps a better way to phrase it, um, the most important avenue in, since we seem to find in our Dharma practices that the different angles and different aspects all seem to lead very much to the same place. And this being one of uh, the compassionate practice of listening, Traditionally, in Theravadan Buddhist countries, when a Dharma talk is given, somebody on behalf of the community um, chants a short phrase in Pali asking for a teaching. And in response, the teacher, the monk or the nun, uh, chants a short phrase back. The English translation of what is said in response by the teacher is this. The gates to the deathless are open. Those who listen, knowing clearly the truth of the moment, they may enter. The gates to the deathless are open. Those who listen, knowing clearly the truth of the moment, they may enter. When I heard this for the first time as a monk in Burma, I enjoyed it very much. To me, it was suggesting the gates are open right now. I don't have to wait for my moment. I don't have to wait to see if I'm invited. It's not a question of it's open for some and not for others, but that they're perpetually open. So what's the qualifying factor? Those who listen, knowing clearly the truth of the moment. They may enter. In many ways, this entire practice is one of listening. The practice of vipassana, or insight meditation, as traditionally taught in the East, uh, there's a whole series of progressive steps, progressive insights that one achieves, if you can use that word in this context, leading up to the different stages of enlightenment. And in the East, these are tracked very closely. Your meditation teacher will be keeping track of where you are, which step of the ladder. And of the first 16 steps leading up to the the first big bang, the first stage of enlightenment, the first insight, I'll let you in on the little secret, I guarantee you it's one you've already had. Does anybody want to take a guess? The first insight of insight meditation is? There are thoughts. She's closer than you might think. There is suffering. Good. Now you put those two together and what do you get? The first insight is your mind wanders. There are thoughts and it causes suffering. Very good. It seems simple. And yet a surprising number of people in this world don't realize it. If you ask the the average person on the street, does your mind wander? 
Oh, no, I'm, I'm directed, I'm clear, I know what I'm thinking, I know what I'm doing. Or even more importantly, do you act upon the wanderings of your mind? And how much our daily activity is directed by what our mind happens to be thinking? How much of our unskillful thoughts, our unskillful speech, and all the worse, our unskillful action, is based on the happenstance of our mind. As the Dhammapada teaches, the mind is the forerunner to all things. The wandering, compulsive, attached, fantasizing, delectable, delicious, terrible, seductive mind is the source of the entire world's suffering. Well, that's the bad news. That's the pessimism of Buddhism. The good news is When we listen to that mind, we enable our own choice. When we listen to what's going on inside, we can see it for what it is and become more, quote-unquote, empowered in the process. And then compassion develops when we see other people's unskillfulness. And we can begin to realize that it's their wandering mind acting itself out. And we can respond with less blame, hurt, or reactivity, and more caring and compassion. I was studying an ancient Aramaic text in Israel just a couple of weeks ago, one of the ancient Jewish texts. And it was talking about what to do. It was very Buddhist, actually. It was talking about what to do if somebody who's close to you, a friend or family member, does something unskillful. And that's the most accurate translation of the word, was unskillful. If they are hurtful or stealing or lying. So I thought, all right, what's the Jewish response going to be? Cut them out of your life? Make them feel guilty? Call their mother? (laughs) Actually, what it said was, I thought this was very interesting. It said, think about if you were to have done the same thing. Which usually, things that people do around us that are hurtful are things that we ourselves have done. Or else they wouldn't have been quite as hurtful or at least things that we've thought of doing. One of the big shifts for me in working in prisons was, after some time, coming to the conclusion that I hadn't met anyone in prison who had done anything that I hadn't myself had the desire to do. So the text suggests, picture yourself doing the same thing, and think up the justification you would have made for yourself in doing it, and then give that justification to the other person. which is really where karuna, the Pali word for compassion, in the dharmic sense comes from. See the source of their delusion, of their ill deed, and then be able to hold that with a certain amount of kindness. Sometimes it's the other way around. Give the compassion to yourself that you so easily give to those around you. So this practice of karuna, one of the Brahma-viharas, one of the divine abodes, considered one of the highest states of mind we can achieve, is very central to our practice. And it isn't anything other than awareness itself. When the mind knows, the heart inevitably loves. 
The action is awareness. The quality is compassion. So even if it isn't some emotional, compassionate response to another individual in suffering, which is usually how we think of compassion, just the way that we see the moment-to-moment experience of our breath, of our life, of our mind, there is a significant and fundamental difference between observing with a quality of compassion and observing with a quality of judgment, of indifference, of separation or distance. Awareness has two components. The mental component, which sees things as they truly are. It's a reflective. It's a mirror which is clear, unfoggy, unwarped, so that it reflects exactly what's there. The seeing. And then there's the heart component, which embraces what is seen. The quality of closeness, of embracing, of acceptance. Whether it's suffering in the world, whether it's situations in our lives, or whether it's just another in-breath. If it was only the mental quality, there would be a dry and distant intellectual separation that we'd be creating. If it was only the heart quality, there could be an overly emotional, attached, mushy quality. They work in balance. I started to learn a little bit about this when I came back from Asia and started in New York working in the prison project with the teenagers in Juvenile Hall. coming back from a year in Asia and then most of a year at IMS in Western Massachusetts, I thought I had a thing or two to teach them. I thought I'd be able to help them. I thought they needed me. If you ever want to check your motivation, tell your plans to a teenager. So I went into these juvenile halls. It was boys and girls from 17 down to about 12 or even 11. And I remember the first class I went in by myself. I had gone in with the fellow I'd started the organization with, uh, Soren Gordhamer, who actually comes from this neck of the woods as well. And then after a couple weeks, I was going in by myself, and it was a girls' group. I thought that would be easy. (laughs) There were only about eight of them. They were all about 16 years old, and one uh, correctional officer who was literally sleeping in the corner. We were sitting in a little classroom upstairs, very stuffy, no windows. The loudspeaker would come blaring on every five minutes. And I walked in, and I had had at least this many notes of all the plans of what I was going to do. And I thought, all right, we'll start with yoga to get in our bodies and connect and relax. As soon as I walked in the door, this one girl says, where's Mr. G? And I said, well, Soren's actually not here today. I'm gonna, I want Mr. G. I said, well, I'm glad you have a nice connection with him. Maybe we'll, no, we won't. <laughs> I finally got them all seated, although I noticed that this one girl, Marta, nobody else sat down until she sat down. And when she sat down, everyone else sat down too. 
And I talked, I gave my opening rap, and then I stood up to do some yoga. And the other seven girls started to stand up until they saw Marta wasn't standing up, and they all sat down. So Marta and I started a little dialogue. And it started to become apparent that um, she was going to have to be sacrificed. Not literally. (laughs) But that unless I asked her to leave, none of the other girls would engage. And it was better for seven kids to participate than eight kids not to participate. So finally I said, Marta, you're going to have to leave. I had warned her two or three times that if she swore again or spoke out, finally enough was enough, I said, you're going to have to leave. She stood up and said, no, you're going to have to leave. (laughs) I took a step forward. She took a step forward. Within moments, we were nose to nose. And the closer we got and the more we got engaged, the more seething we both were in control, in anger, in resentment. And I, for one, wasn't clear how we were going to work through this. I felt like this was my first time in. I had to prove myself. I had to set some boundaries. I had to learn, teach respect. I had to gain respect from the other girls. And she, for one, clearly was not going to back down. So the two thoughts through my mind, as both of us started clenching our fists and our teeth, was, I'm going to get thrown out of the prison for getting in a fist fight on my first weekend here. <laughs> and the second thought was, I think I can take her. <laughs> And I really had no idea how to get out of the situation. And I'm sure we've all had this experience, if not in juvenile hall, with our own children, with our parents, with our spouse, in a work situation, where there's a contraction that comes, a confinement that comes, where there's a real loss of perspective. Somehow in the midst of that, Marta looked at me and said, let's do the meditation. Suddenly, the walls just dropped away. I was shocked that she said it. I was shocked that she thought of it. I realized afterwards that this was a piece of it, that she didn't like doing yoga, and she wanted us to start with meditation. And yet, when you get in these contracted situations, there's very little space, as we all know all too well, to maneuver out. And she found that very narrow space. She asked for what she wanted, but she asked for it in a way by offering me something which was, Seth, you lead the meditation. She didn't demand. She didn't, she didn't usurp my role. She gave me a way out. When telling this story in a Dharma talk in the Middle East, uh, more than one person in the room uh, wondered what the Arafat and Sharon version of offering the other person a way out would be. Um, I'll give you the answer next time. so we did the meditation and as soon as we sat down and shut our eyes I had that experience that I'm sure many of us have had of when the silence comes back and suddenly you start listening and you see what's there and the first thing for me was some amount of shame and sadness regret for having yelled at her feeling of failure and eventually coming around to the most painful feeling of all, which was that I had to apologize to her. 
So after the meditation, when we opened our eyes, I said, Marta, I'm very sorry for having yelled at you. I didn't appreciate how you were acting, but it wasn't my place to be angry at you. We then went around and did our check-in, and the other girl spoke a little. And we got to Marta. She hemmed and hawed and kvetched for a little while. But eventually, she started to talk about this boy who was also in the juvenile hall, who she was in a relationship with, which is somewhat of a euphemism, considering how little contact they have with each other. And how they'd known each other for three or four months now, but he was still involved in the gangs, and he was still getting into fights and not working in his schoolwork, and she was trying to help him to get back on track, but he just didn't seem to be changing, and it was causing her more pain than it seemed to be helping him, and so just the day before, she decided to end the relationship. She had passed a note as they passed in the hallway. And then she reflected on the last three or four boys that she had had connection with and how they were always boys that got into trouble, and she always tried to help them. And she always tried to see if she could help them get back on track. And it never seemed to work. And she told a few very touching anecdotes about trying to help these different friends of hers, boyfriends. As she was talking, uh, an officer came in and gave me the, the roll sheet. And I was looking it over and signing it at the bottom when Marta paused for a minute. And without looking up, I said, Marta, you're one of the kindest people I've met in a long time from hearing her story. And there was a pause, and I gave the piece of paper back, and I looked up, and she was just sort of looking at me. She did that thing that they only do in the cartoons, where she kind of said, who are you talking to? And I said, I was talking to you. She said, what did you say? I said, I think I said you were one of the kindest people I've met in a long time. She said, And she didn't say anything else for the rest of the class. She allowed the class to go on. And at the end of the class, as the girls were coming up and saying goodbye and giving sort of those teenage inner city hugs where you just sort of bump the shoulders against each other, (laughs) she came up and did the same thing. And as she was leaning over and her head was next to mine, she whispered in my ear and she said, that was the nicest thing anyone has ever said to me. And then she stood up and said, you can come back next week if you want. (laughs) And she left. As the guards were walking me out, they told me about Marta and were surprised that I had never seen her picture before because she was on the cover of the Daily News for two weeks straight. When she was 12, she and another gang member from the Bloods were sitting in the back of a cab and robbing the cab driver a livery cab driver, and uh, Marta had the gun, and the cab driver tried to leave, and she shot him in the head and killed him at point blank at age 12 and a half. Every time I tell this story, I see new elements of it, of the quality of how she was able to listen what was needed how much she wanted to be listened to, about how kindness and compassion is not something we either have or don't have. Something I soon found in juvenile hall was that they didn't care how much I knew or what I had done. And if I wanted to help them, I was already sunk. 
what they cared about was if I cared about them, if I was happy to see them, if I laughed at their jokes. What they cared about was whether I could deal with my own suffering and I wouldn't run away from it. And I started to see more and more that when they would test me and they would push my buttons, it was really to see is if I would be okay with it. If they pushed it, could I live with it? And with some of them that I then worked with over about a year, I started to see the motivation behind that was they really wanted to see if I could be with their suffering. If I could hold a big enough space that their suffering could be okay. Some of these kids, it became very apparent they had never met somebody who could deal with all of them. We talked about anger once with the girls, and one of the girls said, if I let my anger out, I would destroy the world. The girl next to her said, nuh-uh, sister. If I let mine out, half the galaxy would be gone. And that included her family, her friends, and herself. There were times when I wished I could do something. And then I realized that they didn't want me to do anything. The activity is awareness. The quality is love. So what gets in the way of this? Why are we less compassionate than we want to be? Much of the time, we don't actually hear what's going on. We don't see the suffering of the other person or ourselves. We only see the suffering they're causing us. We only see their habitual patterns. There's a teaching I have to remember a lot for myself about looking for the five-year-old under the rug. We talked about this in this room once about a year ago on a Thursday evening. Someone spoke about uh, the pain and suffering in relationship to their significant other in a very difficult situation. And the other person just wasn't dealing with it well. The other person didn't have a dharma practice. The partner didn't have a dharma practice and couldn't hold things in the way that that this individual (laughs) did. And there's this way in which when there's suffering in a primary relationship all the more so, that the suffering becomes something between you and I. So when I look at you, I see the suffering, and when you look at me, you see the suffering. 
And I see you on the other side of this suffering as the cause of this suffering. And rather than it being something that's sort of around us that actually brings us closer, it's something between us as a wedge. One of the things in my own life that I've found has shifted that sometimes, sometimes really dramatically. He says, one teacher said to me, you pick up the rug right next to the other person. There's usually about a four or five-year-old, a little boy or a little girl who's under that rug. And when you see how the other person is really acting from that four or five-year-old place, it's a lot more understandable why they're being such a schmuck. And strangely enough, it's far more acceptable. For would we really get this outraged if it was a four-year-old? We might not hear it. We might not see it. We might be so identified with our own sense of what is so, our own identification, that compassion just doesn't have a place. I am the teacher. She has no right to do this to me. My identification puts me in this role. And I will play this role even more and more until she sees. You may have heard this story that could be true or could not be of the battleship, the USS Missouri, which was with a whole fleet of uh, accompanying ships up in the North Atlantic when on the radar there was a Canadian ship that appeared 10 miles ahead. And the the radar operator and the radio operator called the, the admiral over and he had the radio operator get on the radio and say, I'm calling on behalf of the admiral of the USS Missouri. We're heading on this course. You will need to adjust your course by moving 10 degrees to the southeast. The radio came back on and said, you will have to adjust your course by 10 degrees to the northwest. The radio announcer said again, this is the USS Missouri, American battleship. You will adjust your course by 10 degrees to the southeast. And the Canadian radio operator came back on and said, you will adjust your course 10 degrees to the northwest. All the while, they're coming closer and closer through the fog. Finally, the admiral himself got on and said, this is the admiral of the USS Missouri. We were a fully armed destroyer. (laughs) We have four battleships along with us. We have helicopter escort. You will change your course 10 degrees to the southeast. Canadian voice came back on in perfect, polite Canadian dialect and said, this is the lighthouse. You will adjust. How many things, when we look on our cushion in Vipassana, do we see just seemed so-so? They seemed so much to be that way until we actually looked. (coughs) There is a stage in the progression of insight where it feels like the world is falling away and everything becomes sort of shaky. Because what seems so solid and real, one begins to see it's not as solid and real as we thought. And it's terrifying. 
people literally at this stage of the practice sit gripping onto their cushion or onto the chair. Are we willing to look? Are we willing to listen? When we feel that we're not being heard, our tendency is to speak louder, to push harder, to reach out more and insist. How much more difficult it is to instead listen more. To listen to what's keeping them from hearing us. To listen to what is it we need to have heard right now. In one of the juvenile halls that I went into, we met once in the chapel. And up on the... uh, On the altar, there was a piece of paper from from the chaplain. And it had some different quotes from Jesus. And the first one really has stuck with me ever since. It says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How much of our lives do we know not what we do? And yet here in the Buddhist teachings, it's not about learning some philosophy, some doctrine, some text. The Zen book, the Mumukan, which literally means the gateless gate. The gates are open. That's why they call it the gateless gate. And the Mumukan is one of the collection of what's called secret teachings. Secret has two meanings in this case. Secret in the sense of hidden and not easily seen. And the second meaning is secret as an intimate. It's already very close. I'd like to tell you two final stories. In Tzfat, where I live in the north of Israel in the Galil, it's sort of the Dharamsala of, Ind- of Israel. It's where the Jewish mystics all lived. It's generally a safe and quiet area, in part because 50 years ago they ran all the Arabs out of town. So there isn't any uh, neighborly conflict. But there was one bus bombing just outside of Sfat about four months ago one of the Egged buses, one of the state-run buses, uh, blew up just about three miles outside of Sfat. And what became known soon after and became a huge controversy is that there's a community college in Sfat, and actually uh, it's about half Arab and half Jewish, half Muslim and Christian and half Jewish. And the bomber who got on the bus, a young man who in his own way felt unheard, he got on the bus with his bomb and as he walked down the aisle he saw two young women sitting together 
one who is his second cousin and her friend, both from the college there in Svat. And as he walked by, he told them to get off the bus. And so the two women, without saying a word, got up and walked off the bus. And about five minutes later, the bus blew up. So as you can imagine, there was a whole range of emotions and responses to this horror and sadness and tragedy of the disaster. I've yet to meet an Israeli, Palestinian or Jewish, who doesn't know somebody who's been either killed or wounded in an attack. And there was also a huge amount of outrage. Uh, The mayor of Sfat called for the Arabs to be kicked out of the college. Then the questions of, well, what should they have done when he said that? Should they have stayed? Should they have said something to the driver, in which case he would have blown himself up right then, including them? Is there anything they could have done? After thinking about it for a while, I suddenly had this thought, which might be obvious to you, I had to think about it for a while to make sure that it wasn't just a rationalization or a justification in my own mind. But it seems like, to me, the second-to-last action that this man did was one of real sincere compassion and kindness. His last action was one of real anger and violence and destructivity. But his second-to-last one was purely with the motivation of saving two lives. And the more I thought about it, I couldn't find anything but kindness in that action. You might feel otherwise. And I think for me, one piece of thinking about it and in seeing that is that just as with everything else in the Dharma, It's not about becoming a this or a that. There really is no such thing as a compassionate person, and all the less so an uncompassionate person. It's a moment-to-moment, action-by-action responsibility. Growing up, many of the stories that I heard about compassion were about my great-grandmother, Jen. My great-grandmother, Jen, was born in Hungary and moved to Pennsylvania as a young woman, where she met my great-grandpa, Joe, who, as their daughter, my aunt, my great-aunt, told me, she said, Seth, your great-grandpa, Joe, was the first and only Jewish redneck. He had a cattle business, he spit, he cursed, he was a wrestler professionally in barns at night, he'd gamble on it, Uh, and it seemed like the more of that ilk he became, the kinder she became, which really is one of the options. We see this in prison a lot, more with the adults, particularly the adult women. Prisons breed two things, animals and saints, and she became a saint. She had the first, she was the first Jewish woman in their town to have their own business. 
and she had a store in the front of the house and a little grocery market. And during the Depression, one day she was in the back in the kitchen with her sister and they were baking cookies and bread for the, for the store. And they were looking out the window and out of the woods came this hobo, a man who probably worked in one of the factories somewhere in the U.S. until he lost his job. <coughs> and he just jumped off the freight train, which goes by the back of their house, and had come in their backyard with a bag over his shoulder. When he got in the yard, he put the bag down on the ground, and he starts looking through the grass and picking up the clothespins from the grass. When he picked them all up out of the grass, he starts taking the extra ones off the clothesline. When he has a full armful, he picks up his bag and he leaves. Well, they didn't know what to make of it. But a few moments later, the bell rings, meaning somebody's come through the front door. Excuse me. So Jen and her sister come out from the kitchen with the the tray of cookies. Sure enough, there's the hobo. Jen goes behind the cash register. Excuse me, ma'am. I'm sorry to bother you, but I'm selling clothespins. (laughs) Jen looks at him a moment. How much? He says, "Mm, I'd say about a nickel. She says, all right. She opens up the cash register. She takes out a nickel. He puts the clothespins down on the counter. He takes the nickel. He goes over and gets a loaf of bread from the shelf, puts the nickel back down. He says, thank you, ma'am, and he leaves. As soon as he leaves, Jen's sister can't contain herself any longer. says, Jen, you know darn well those are your clothespins. She says, yes, and you know darn well if he'd asked for a nickel, I would have given it to him. And then she says, if he wants to feel like he's working for a living... Let him feel like he's working for a living. What strikes me every time with that story is for Jen, it wasn't so much, or for me in hearing the story, it's not so much about giving the nickel. That's not so difficult for most of us. But to give him the benefit of the doubt, to give him that respect, How often we wonder, oh, what would they do with the money? Or they probably don't deserve it. And here she sincerely believed, he's not trying to snooker me. He wants to feel like he's working for a living. In some ways I had to think that maybe she was listening to his intention deeper than maybe he even was himself. Thoughts, questions, comments. What ended up happening to Marta? Hmm. What ended up happening to Marta? Um, As far as I know, which was six months ago, uh, she's still in juvenile hall. Her (laughs) trial has gone on and then stopped and gone on and then stopped. Um, Her lawyer is actually trying to... um, They caught her when she was 14 when one of the girls in in the Bloods gang that she was in uh, ratted her out. And so at 14, they arrested her at 4 o'clock in the morning and got her to confess without her mother or her lawyer present. 
at 4 o'clock in the morning. So her lawyer has been trying to get her off on Miranda rights. Um, she's, in the meantime, uh, gotten involved with a really wonderful young man who I was working with simultaneously. And they got married when they both turned 18 in prison. Um, but I haven't heard anything for the last six months about her trial. Please. After this other person has um, been unskillful and you look under the rug mm. and you see the five-year-old mm. and you understand, you're aware, mm -hmm. you have compassion, mm -hmm. but what is the next step? It's mm. a good question. Did everyone hear the question? After you look under the rug and you see the five-year-old, all right, I'm compassionate looking at the five-year-old, but then what? It's a very good question. Do you want to say a little bit more about the specific situation or leave it general? No, okay. Um, two things. One is I can, I can think of a few specifics that I'd like to share. But more generally, I think the reason why I told the story and left it there is that the idea of compassion and compassionate action is that it comes from that place in your heart and it comes from that view. So that to some extent we can talk about, and we certainly can talk about what are the specifics, but that in some ways more fundamentally is, uh, where is the, where is the motivation or where is the stance from which we then do the action? Um, and it may work and it may not work, but we can't, this is the whole concept of karma, we can't know the outcome. What we can decide and what does determine how things will be is, uh, is the intention behind it. Um, I think just as with a five-year-old, with a literal five-year-old, um, we can think of sort of the archetypal mother who is very caring and loving, but is also not a pushover and is not willing to be walked on, uh, but also in an archetypal sense, in a kind of a, an ultimate sense of, of parenting, doesn't allow one's own anger or hurt to guide one's actions. So I think that's what I'm talking about is being able to reflect back to the other person. Um, here's what I'm experiencing, and it's really, I, I don't, uh, uh, it's hurtful to me when you dot, dot, dot. Um, that taking care of yourself is a very important piece of it. But it's taking care of yourself um, in a way that's not directly hurtful to the other person. Um, one central piece to that is also looking and seeing if there's a five-year-old under your rug as well. That usually um, there, there are two of you doing this tango. Um, and that then one of the big pieces about getting the five-year-olds out of the driver's seat is that the five-year-old is actually, it seems like the five-year-old is very afraid of the other person hurting them. Really what the five-year-old is afraid of is that you as the grown-up is not going to protect them. And that our job as the adult in us, so to speak, if this isn't getting too psychological, is to play that role of holding their hand and leading them, not telling them to go to their room. And that's true with the other person as well, is showing the five-year-old, I'm not going to threaten you. I'm not going to endanger you. And that that can help that five-year-old to feel safe. And then we need to do that with ourselves, because it's usually our five-year-old that's wanting to fight and punch, and that there is a whole other relationship going on. 
sometimes for me, the, the metaphor that works is who's driving. Am I allowing the five-year-old to drive? Or is the five-year-old sitting next to me and I'm taking care of it? And I'm, I'm, I'm compassionate towards him and I, I love him and I realize he's here and he's my friend, but he's depending on me to stay in that seat. Um, so I find for myself, in terms of the action towards the other person, it's almost like I wouldn't want to send the barbs and arrows that moments ago I really wanted to send them and I thought they deserved. Once I see that it's a five-year-old I'm fighting. Is that helpful? Okay. One more? Please. So the question is about uh, how old is your son? Uh, a seven and a half year old friend uh, over for a sleepover who's having difficulty. The other boy is having difficulty at home and thus is acting out in not such skillful ways. Um, she suggested this conflict between being compassionate and not wanting her son to sort of follow in those footsteps. I would actually disagree that there's a conflict because, as we were just talking about in the previous question, compassion is very different than approval. And the difference between acceptance and approval is fundamental. That the sense of acceptance that we talked about in the beginning in terms of our own experience, the warm heart's embrace of our experience, does not mean we approve of what's happening. It doesn't mean that we uh, even allow it, but that the response that we have, excuse me, is not reactive on the one hand and angry, um, and it's not uh, approving on the other. And there is a way to, with the utmost of compassion, set very clear and firm limits. And it, this too is very, more so than most anything else, is a moment to moment practice. Because we can say, okay, I'm gonna love him and set a limit. And we do that for a minute, you know, and then he kicks us in the shins. And then, you know, oh, oh, okay, I'm gonna set, no, you aren't gonna kick me in the shins. But I'm not gonna allow myself to cut you out of my love. That there can't be love and hate simultaneously. That as long as you're loving him and you're seeing him and you're accepting him, then you're coming from that compassionate place. But that in no way limits your ability to take care of yourself, to be a good role model for your son, to set limits for him, for, for the, for the guest. Um, and this, this is really the place of practice. We can talk about kind of ultimate stories of divine compassion and, and uh, Kuan Yin and such. But really where it comes down is, is how to draw those lines. 
with compassion. How to, there's the story of the young Japanese woman who goes to her Zen master every day to hear teachings and he talks about compassion and love and compassion and love. But every day she walks through the, uh, through the market and all the men make rude comments to her. And one day she can't take it anymore and she just snaps and she turns and she yells at some of these men. And she turns back and she sees her Zen master on the other side. And she's mortified and she bows her head and she walks on to the monastery and she bows down to him and she apologizes. She said, I'm so sorry. I just, I, I lost control. And he said, compassion, kindness are very important. And with the utmost kindness and compassion, you may need to take your, take your umbrella and give them a good whack. <laughs> Let's sit for a couple minutes. <laughs> 